The Princess Thieves. Prologue. A thousand years ago, the Dwart, proud and cunning, first made their home on the island of Britannica, in the realm of Kelador. Uh, Celador. No, no, it's Kelador with a hard C, from the Celtic darling. I've only ever heard Celador. Then everybody you've ever met has been saying it wrong. I think I know how to pronounce Kelador. Well, okay, that's fine. You're the boss. Yes, I am. Shall I continue? Yes. From the top, or...? Just from in the realm of Celador. Kelador! Yep, sorry. Ke- <clears throat> Carry on, please. On the island of Britannica. In the realm of Celador. Oh, bollocks! It's all right. It was good. Just, just, can you do that again? Just, just without the bollocks. You've got me saying it now. Yes, I accede. That one was my fault. Please continue. Two races. The Duarte. Short, cunning, and stubborn. And the Arca. Hulking, green-skinned, and monstrous. Yes, hang on. I have a problem with this. Monstrous. Well, they are a bit. It's so very negative, though. Not true. Monstrous can be a positive thing. For example, I once ate a monstrous cake. It was all kinds of... And green-skinned. That's just racist. And inaccurate as well. They come in many different and subtle hues. Yes, that does sound rather bad. Well, you don't have to say all of it. Just skip to the important part. The Arca came to Kalador from the realm of Hanoth, demanding a new home for the Duart people. Wait! What? This was later. Nearly a thousand years later. You just compressed all this history into one epic prologue. I think you might have missed a bit along the way. Um, do you want to go from the top again, or shall we have a break and a cup of tea? You haven't even mentioned King Arthur. I think he's rather important in the grand scheme of things. Oh, absolutely he is. I know, we're just saving him until later. This is just supposed to be the important bits they need to know from the off. All right. Let me just... Let me get through this to the end. Then we'll break. Now that is a splendid plan. And the second take is always the best anyway. Then a gateway opened. North of the city of Londinium. A gateway to another world. Look, even I'm confused now. Oh. How many worlds are we dealing with here? Uh, let's see. Uh, there's one. Ten. Ten? But only four that they know about so far. Rama, where the tigers come from, and Hanoth, where the Arca come from, and Celador. Calador! Look, can it be both? Please? I mean, can we just live alongside one another, pronouncing things differently? I mean, how do you say potato? Potato. Apparently, although I've never met them before, there are people who call them potatoes. I have literally never heard that pronunciation. How do you say tomato? What's a tomato? Oh, good grief. I mean it. We haven't discovered them yet. We ate tomatoes for breakfast yesterday. That was a tomato. (sighs) (laughs) You're so easy to tease. What was the last of those four worlds? You only said three. Right, well, we're calling it New Century One at the moment. It's a placeholder name, obviously. It's a very silly name. Where I come from, worlds have names like Arda and Etheria and Narnia. Well, no, that's absolutely fine. We'll change the placeholder name. What would you like to call it? Really? Really. Oh, all right. How about Alluvia? Mm, too floaty. Effluvia? Mm-mm, too disgusting. Cyclopia? 
Uh, too imposing and somewhat alien? Vitruvia. Yeah, that's quite a good one. Hmm. Oh, what about Polestar? Polestar? Yes, I was reading about it this morning. It means hub, like the central point on a cartwheel, which it kind of is. Oh, you mean a centrality. Now we're cooking. Hang on. Hang on, hang on. Um, uh, Centrum. Yes. All right, then. Here we go. The two races, Duarte and Arca, walked through the gateway, out of Kelador and into Centrum. Oh, one last thing. Uh, <sighs> should it be Kentrum? <sighs> I'll shut up. The two races, Duarte and Arca, walked through the gateway, out of Celador and into Centrum. What they found was the city of London in their year 1873. As with the rest of the world of Centrum, the British Isles had recently been beset by a plague of its own, and many of the people had been reduced to savage, infected beasts spoken of in hushed whispers as the Barghest. Aggressive and cunning hunters who preyed on humankind and snuck in the shadows. Queen Victoria had fled and the city had burned, but those still living in this broken place were hardy folk with a talent for survival and formed allegiances with the newcomers. Soon the Dwart Firecasters were patrolling the counties of Britain, hunting down the creatures, their bodies mercifully immune to the infection. The Dwart were fascinated with the new technology they encountered in this world and asked the humans how they could work it in exchange for their protection. An uneasy new balance was struck across the country, and the industrial revolution that had been stalled was eventually begun once more. Most people live in poverty, and some creatures still roam the fens and forests, from Suffolk to Warwickshire. In the absence of a queen, the Duarte Archduke of Buckingham was appointed regent of the throne of the British Empire. It was his place to guard over the only surviving member of the human's royal Saxe-Coburg bloodline, the young Princess Gwendolen. Now, ten years later, all of London is abuzz with excitement for the wedding of Gwendolen to the Duarte Lord, Aaron of Britannica. This is the story of the days leading up to that fateful wedding that would unite the two realms. Was that all good? Yeah, they'll pick up the rest as they go. Time for tea. <sighs> oh, bloody hell do I need it. Part 1. London Town. Chapter 1. The Duarte and the Arca. London, 1875. We should really start a few years ago, actually. When a female Duarte named Viola came to Buckingham Palace one morning to apply for a job. 
As she walked the lavish halls, accompanied by the butler, she passed a nanny in a state of sheer exasperated apoplexy. The woman was heading from the master bedroom, rearranging her pinafore, which had been torn at the shoulder by some kind of rabid beast. She also sported a black eye. Good luck with that one, little madam. She is quite beyond the help of normal folk. Viola did not remark upon this, but curtsied and continued her walk of determination, the tall, willowy human butler, Mr. Simpson, towering above her, unruffled, but apprehensive. She was led into the bedroom of a red-faced, chubby little girl of nine who had just flung a vase at the wall. The whole room was in disarray. Clothes everywhere, bed sheets on the floor, furniture pushed over. The girl's eyes flashed. Her hair was an unruly bird's nest and her little fists were clenched tight as she shook with fury. Hello, princess. I suppose you're here to caper for me with your bright clothes and silly hair. Well, I don't want a jester today. I don't want anything. Viola locked her purple eyes on the girls and did not move. Did you hear me? Are you deaf as well as hideously ugly? Viola said nothing. She walked to the side of the room and hopped up nimbly upon the dresser. What are you doing? Viola picked up an equally precious looking vase and flung it down on the floor, where it smashed into a thousand pieces. You're for it now. Hey, stop that! Viola had kicked several perfume bottles over. The precious liquid inside glugged out and dribbled to the floor. That's mine! It's all yours, but if you're going to treat it like this, we may as well smash the lot. Oh, you disgusting thing! Simpson! Simpson! The butler entered once more. Yes, your royal highness. Take this pink and purple thing away! Have her stuffed or something. I am afraid the Archduke has placed Miss Viola in charge today. But she's smashing my things. I must abscond from this. Let me know if she screams enough to make herself vomit. Viola watched the man leave, closing the doors behind him, and a little smile settled upon her face. Princess Gwendolyn gawped at her, wide-eyed. You will not push me around. Viola made a great leap and landed squarely against the girl's chest, propelling her backwards and down upon the bed with a squeak of pure rage. The little Duarte then settled upon a cushion while the girl screamed bloody murder. Personally, I would have punched her square out, but that's why I'm not a nanny. Viola instead waited until the girl rose up to grab at her with a surprisingly strong grip. The Duarte waved her fingers quickly and whispered an incantation. A thin trail of blue smoke passed across the child's features. She tasted lavender, her eyes rolled back, and she fell into a light slumber. Nap time! Viola opened a pouch at her waist and retrieved a barley sugar sweet, popping it in her mouth as she recovered a little energy from the spell expenditure. Twenty minutes passed and the girl eventually stirred, awaking to find those strange, intense eyes watching her from the foot of the bed. Hmm. How dare you? Princess, I didn't want to do that. And I probably shouldn't have. But... Well, I'm sorry to tell you this, but it's become common knowledge that you're a miniature tyrant. Your nannies have all fled or been banished by you. Well, why don't you? Why don't you leave me as well? I don't need you. Because, Gwendolyn, I don't want to. I'm not scared of you. You should be. 
I could have you executed if I wanted to. Oh, I know. But you're not going to. You want me to be a good little girl? Tidy my room? Wear a pretty dress? I'll settle for just looking after yourself and wiping your nose. Here, have my hanky. Gwendolyn glared at her and defiantly blew her nose on the bedsheets. I'm not going to be gotten rid of easily, Princess, but I'll make you a deal. If you still hate me within one week from this point, which is 10.45 next Wednesday, then I shall leave. If you don't hate me, I shall stay. How did you do that thing you did? You made me sleep. I've not seen that. I have a whole bag of secrets, my dear princess. Best not tell anyone about them, though. <laughs> now I've got you. I shall tell Simpson right away that you're using some kind of forbidden magic. Yes, you can do that at any point. But... Then you'll only have known one of my secrets. Oh, now who's this? That's... That's Sebastian. And is he your favorite? Yes. Oh, he likes you. Is that good? He hasn't liked any of my other nannies. Well, I'm... I'm going to be more than that. I think. Can you make Sebastian sleep like that? Sebastian isn't going to hurt himself or me. I use that because you will be on your own control. Can you make Simpson sleep? No, I won't. Same principle. <sighs> I see. Are you going to be my bodyguard too? Very astute, Princess. Although, officially speaking, I'm retained as your jester. If I don't hate you. If you don't hate me. Now, are you hungry? I noticed a destroyed breakfast over there on the floor. I am. A bit. Then can you call for second breakfast, please? I'll have poached eggs and toast. Then we'll see about cleaning up this disaster area. I'm... I'm sorry I said you were ugly. You're pretty. And tea as well, please. All right. Yes, Miss Viola. Yes, Miss Viola. You haven't beaten me, you know. I'm not trying to, Princess. You're not even that much older than me. Well, you're probably barely out of school yourself. Listen, Princess. I've had to fight for everything my whole life. I reckon I'm tough enough to handle you. That remains to be seen. Are you going to tell me some more of your secrets? Well... That really all depends on your behaviour. Neither of them knew at the time, but what had begun in that moment was a bond that would endure through the brightest and darkest of times. Eight years later, and London had slowly and subtly transformed. 
its rows of brick factories now augmented with the trappings of Dwat architecture, all colonnades and archways and statuary with beautifully painted detail. Nearly all repairs had been carried out with the new occupants of England in mind. And naturally, with the Arca towering seven feet tall, the Dwart ranging between three foot six for the females and four foot six for the males, and the humans stuck with an average somewhere in between, nobody could agree on the right size of doorframe. This meant Arca kept knocking their skulls periodically on English oak, reminded each time of their awkward, too-big stature, and every time a Dwart stepped into or out of a room, they felt a pang of anxiety that everyone else was bigger than them. To this end, the Dwart gentry adapted the front entrances of their purloined and occupied homes to be shorter, so humans would have to stoop to enter and Arco would be put off altogether. The servants' entrances round the back stayed the same. You might wonder why the humans didn't rise up and toss these diminutive new oppressors back to their own world. There were three chief reasons. One, the Dwart firecasters were, as has been said, exceptionally good at dispatching the infected bar guest which made them a formidable fighting force to contend with, tough and stubborn. Two, even if they were somehow shoved back through the gateway to cellar door, the humans had no idea how to shut it behind them. It was, to all intents and purposes, a permanently open fixture to the north of London that would lead to the strange, parallel island of Britannica. And three, after ten years of being hungry, oppressed, and miserable, choking on black chimney smoke, Things were much the same as when humans were in charge. However, that didn't mean there wasn't a strong resistance gathering beneath the streets. For when you push people too far, revolution is inevitable. At least I've always found that to be the case, but what do I know? I'm a horse. We begin again with two key players in the resistance, and neither of them was human. Picture a gilded carriage, drawn by four beautiful dappled white horses. Now picture the occupants. The Marquis of Chiswick, a title that had to be invented for him, it's important to note, along with his wife and daughter. Recall, if you will, the kind of bewigged, powdered, Regency-era fashion that gripped England and France during that lengthy Marie Antoinette era that had eventually ended round about 50 years previously with the less pompous and actually quite sensible King William IV. He was the one played by Jim Broadbent in Young Victoria, well, as it turns out, the Dwart gentry were rather fond of it, and the look had been experiencing something of a resurgence, along with those Napoleonic-era bandleader coats favored by Sergeant Pepper, but nonetheless unarguably dashing. The brigands were wearing this style of jacket that morning, adapted with hoods and bandanas to conceal their faces. Stand and deliver! Okay, Thin White Duke, prepare to have a thrilling story of a brush with death to tell all your high society friends. Because you are, as of now, being held up by Robin of the Hood. You blackguards! How dare you! Do you know who I am? Of course we know who you are. We've been planning this for days. I'll have the ring in the pouch. No, not that one. The one in your underclothes. How do you know about that one? London has eyes at every window and ears at every door. You remember that when you're cutting the paychecks of your next round of servants. Turn over our purses, Tarquin. Can't you see this dandy highwayman is in control here? Smart lady. And if I may say so, fairer than you deserve, Tarquin. Are you really Robin of Loxley? Yes, I certainly am. Necklace and brooch, please, my lady. But by your frame, surely you're Duarte. I thought he was a human. I thought he died a thousand years ago. 
This fellow's an imposter. Oh, what an adorable child. What's your name, sweetheart? Imogen, you rapscallion. Imogen. Well, you tell all your little friends. Robin Hood is back. You're going to get sloppy and you're going to get caught. Yes, Robin. Can I call you Robin? Aren't you afraid they'll catch you? Me? No, I'm quick as a fox and twice as cunning. Now, if you'll forgive me and my partner, little John, here, we shall bid you good day. And assure you that we really would have murdered you all horribly on the spot if you put up even the slightest bit of resistance. Watchmen come and rob. Oh, yuck! It's a filthy great archer. Daddy, make it go away faster. We're going. My daddy says all you people do is steal anyway. So I suppose I shouldn't be too very surprised. Is that so? Hey, Daddy, he took Veronica. Give her a doll back. No. I want to see his head on a spike. Don't give her a doll back. Wasn't gonna. Be quiet, Imogen. He's a seasoned cutthroat who will kill us all. Didn't you hear him? You two I kill. This one, I'd probably eat. No one's getting eaten today. I should play a card to open later. You vile brute. Stay away from my daughter. Robin, how can someone as charming as you associate with such a repulsive creature? Madam, you are talking about my closest companion. Besides which, I might ask you the same question. Twice. Filthy thieving green skin. <laughs> right, well, that's us. Good luck raising this one. You have been listening to The Princess Thieves, written, edited, and produced by Alex Shaw with a full cast. Prologue narrator performed by Maureen Foley. Prologue engineer and Robin performed by Alex Shaw. Flashback narrator performed by Sharon Shaw. London narrator performed by Spencer Lieb. Nanny T and Marchioness Marissa performed by Elizabeth Atkins. Simpson and the Marquis of Chiswick, which is actually pronounced Chiswick, performed by Matt Ramsey. Imogen, performed by Willow Shaw. Little John, performed by Matt Wardle. Viola, performed by Loretta Saylor. And Princess Gwendolyn, performed by Theo Lee. The prologue theme was Ancient Heroes by Kleinos. The Princess Thieves theme was Arrival by I. Sazanov of Shockwave Sound. Three versions of the Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy, originally composed by Pyotr Ilyich Tchaikovsky for his 1892 ballet, The Nutcracker, here re-orchestrated by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com, who also composed Arcade Chade and the credits theme, Angevin. Many soundscapes provided by Tabletop Audio. The New Century Multiverse is funded by Patreon, and our $15 sponsors get credit every episode, so thank you to Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Datchler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Duran Barnett, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clayson, Joe G, Josh Waster, Kat Esman, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Marty Huey, Matthew A. Siebert, 
Matthew Webb, Michael Hasco, Robbie Crow, Sarah Montgomery, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Jungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns. And I'm going to preserve many of the things that I said at the end credits of these episodes when I put them out in 2016 and 2017. So some of them will be announcing things that happened years ago, but it's kind of interesting to see how they develop. If you enjoyed the beginning of this fifth story from New Century and would like to delve into the other adventures, they can be found as complete audiobooks on Bandcamp. And if you like this episode, why not rate and review us on iTunes? It takes two minutes and it gets the show more recognition. The correct pronunciation of Suffolk is Suffolk. Warwickshire is Warwickshire. And Buckingham is Buckingham. <laughs> <laughs>